0: Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed, my name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. I I just want to keep you guys all up on the literature, that's all I want to do, and to do that, I am willing to spoon-feed it to you. Now, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering from this week. CPR is tired work, but perhaps it's best not done in bed. After that, should we be adding fludrocortisone to hydrocortisone for patients in septic shock? Then, we're loving STEMI equivalents lately, but are they enough to activate the CathLab post-ROSC? Then, Impact Factor, but for blogs and podcasts. And then finally, is delayed sequence induction safe in trauma? If you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber and so will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only receiving a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, they're all good articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember that we never, ever, ever want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just get in touch. We'll help you out. Now, this is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by myself, Millie Koss, Jason Lesnick, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. All right, here's the first article titled, Effectiveness of Lay Bystander Hands-Only Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation on a Mattress versus the Floor, a Randomized Crossover Trial Out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. All right, let's jump to the second article titled Comparative Effectiveness of Fluidrocortisone and Hydrocortisone versus Hydrocortisone Alone Among Patients with Septic Shock Out of the JAMA Internal Medicine. Now, I don't often see this done, but the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines currently give a weak recommendation to add glucocorticoids to the treatment of sepsis. I'd love to know how much this is adopted routinely, actually, I'd be quite curious. The question here is whether or not that's enough. Could we do better by adding flugicortisone to that mix? Until now, there hasn't been sufficiently powered studies to properly compare hydrocortisone alone to hydrocortisone plus flugicortisone as part of sepsis treatment. Unfortunately, this study is retrospective. But it was using observational data that they had on 88,000 patients, which is a lot. All these patients were hospitalized for septic shock, and were receiving norepinephrine infusions then were treated with either hydrocortisone alone or hydrocortisone plus flugicortisone. These steroids had to have been started within three days of their hospital stay. 97% of the patients received hydrocortisone alone, and the remaining 3% got both steroids. So this practice is clearly the minority. Makes you wonder why they were getting it in the first place. Regardless, in the group that got both steroids, 47% died or were discharged to hospice care, compared with 51% in the hydrocortisone alone group. So that's a 4% mortality difference, at least if you count discharging to hospice as death. Not sure that's fair for me to do, but the secondary outcome of in-hospital mortality was also significantly less, so I'm pretty happy that it was probably decreasing mortality. Now, the medical system in which this study was done seems to do a lot of discharging to hospice, which isn't a common thing where I work. Though all in all, the number needed to treat for this data would still be 29 to prevent hospital mortality. This isn't the only positive study that actually supports this practice, either there is the Approaches RCT from 2018, which was also positive. Now, from a physiological perspective, the authors mechanistically justify the addition of fludrocortisone as being that we primarily think of hydrocortisone as having some mineral corticoid function, but we base that this has this function on sodium retention effects, pretty much exclusively, which doesn't account for all the other effects of the mineral corticoid system, such as innate immunity activation and clearance of alveolar fluid, Perhaps these are better stimulated by flugicortisone, and this is the reason for the mortality benefit that we're seeing here. That's a big perhaps, though. Anyways, in a spoonful, there is growing data to add flugicortisone to hydrocortisone in the treatment of sepsis. But you shouldn't take this retrospective study as all there is. There is actually some RCT data to support this. And then we skip off to the last article titled "Periintubation Hypoxia After Delayed versus Rapid Sequence Intubation in Critically Injured Patients on Arrival to Trauma Triage, a Randomized Control Trial, out of the journal Anesthesia and Analgesia. The key to a successful intubation is preparation. That means proper pre-oxygenation, running through procedural checklists, if that's your thing, and optimizing the patient's positioning, even though ramping doesn't seem to work, we've covered articles on that in the past. All these things are hard to do if the patient is freaking out. Or I suppose we could use more technical terms and call them agitated or delirious after a trauma which has made them so and brought them to the hospital in the first place. Would it be better to dissociate these patients with some ketamine to calm them and allow for proper intubation preparation? Or would this sedation be too risky in trauma patients who are already requiring an intubation? This was an RCT on patients who presented to an academic emergency department in India who were agitated or delirious after suffering a major trauma. The patients were randomized to either delayed sequence intubation or rapid sequence intubation. 100 patients in the delayed group were given ketamine at 0.5 mg per kg in boluses until they became dissociated. This was then followed by 3 minutes of face mask pre-oxygenation before they were given succinylcholine and intubated. Another 100 patients were put into the RSI group. Also, they had 3 minutes of face mask pre-oxygenation, but this was done without sedation, and then they were given ketamine and succinylcholine at the same time for RSI. Now, a total of 36 patients who had unanticipated difficult airways were excluded from the analysis. What they mean by unanticipated was that they did the, the rapid sequence intubation or the delayed sequence intubation. They tried it and then they go oh no, this is a difficult airway. And then they excluded these patients. I have no idea why they did that. I definitely understand excluding anticipated difficult intubations, which they also excluded, but if you're only going to uncover it as difficult when you're trying to do it, then this is irrelevant. Also, the delayed sequence intubation group had half as many difficult intubations as the RSI group, which sounds important to me. Anyways, the primary outcome was peri-intubation hypoxemia, which was also lower in the delayed sequence intubation group, compared to the RSI group. 8% compared to 35%, which is a pretty big difference. First attempt success was also higher in the DSI group, 83 versus 69, again, significant. Rates of hemodynamic instability and airway-related adverse events were similar, but like I said, they excluded all the difficult airways, so that's gonna kind of be by the definition. Now, I'm gonna gripe here for a second on that throughout the entire paper, the authors use the term hypoxia incorrectly every single time. Hypoxia technically refers to low oxygen states at the tissue level, but here they weren't measuring anything, no organ-specific outcomes. What they wanted to say was hypoxemia, which is measured by the SpO2, which is oxygen in the blood, which is exactly what these authors did. Another limitation was that all intubations were done by a second-year anesthesiology resident, Who would, of course, be more accustomed to doing delayed sequence intubations as they typically do them in the operating room, which is standard there, and it's not necessarily standard in the emergency department, and how does the experience of a second-year resident compare to a seasoned emergency physician? Hard to say. So this may have biased some of the results. And another thing was that all the intubations were done with direct laryngoscopy whereas we're moving more towards more and more especially in the emergency department being done with video laryngoscopy okay in a spoonful this trial supports the use of delayed sequence intubation in agitated trauma patients in the emergency department which i am all for but i don't think that i would put too much stock in this paper specifically though it was a great idea just didn't love how it was written up or executed. That's all. Okay, let's do our wrap-up. What did we talk about today? Let's cover everything real quick. Then the second article, next time you're including steroids for the treatment of sepsis, consider adding flugicortisone as well. It could help. An NNT of 29 to prevent in-hospital mortality. And then fifth and finally, The last paper supported the use of delayed sequence intubation in agitated trauma patients to give you more time to pre-oxygenate and prepare. I think the principle is great, and I would actually certainly use it myself. However, I have my reservations about this study. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Now, if you're feeling like you missed out, you'd like to hear more podcasts, you'd like to get access to the blog, come and join us in the members feed. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time.